We're glad you're joining us here at Common Thread Online. This is a recording of our community gathering as we do each week to think together about the spiritual journey. At the end of the lesson, we open the floor for discussion, but we'd love to hear what you're thinking as well. On our website are directions to download our app. Once you have it, join the group. What are you thinking? We'd love to connect with you there. ...clear from the perspectives of other people around me. When the idea was floated in my Enneagram group that I was an eight, all my new friends' heads began to nod in agreement around the table, and I was aghast. An eight? I'm not an eight. I don't want to be an eight. They're the assholes. <laughs> so I went to visit Robin, who kindly agreed to help me figure things out. I walked into that room upstairs at the old church where she was sitting, and she had all kinds of literature about Enneagram 8 spread out on the table in front of her. Whoa, Robin, I said, I don't know if I'm an 8 yet. That's what I'm coming here to talk about. Robin simply looked up at me with her wise eyes and said, Oh, I know an 8 when they walk in the room. Why don't you sit down? Robin was able to make it perfectly clear to me that indeed I was an 8. What she told me resonated in a lot of ways. I could see myself as self-confident, strong and assertive, protective, resourceful, straight-talking, and decisive. She was gentle, of course. She understood I was new to all this, and I came away feeling like I was a healthy eight. <laughs> I might have steamrolling tendencies, for instance, but more often than not, I use them for good. I came home and gave Maria the good news. Turns out I'm an eight, babe, but for the most part, I'm not an asshole. <laughs> oh, friends, we must never be so complacent as to identify with anything we think is true about ourselves, especially when we want to rest in their supposed goodness. Over the next couple of years, I came to see my eightness show up, or more often it was pointed out to me, and as it turns out, it didn't always manifest in healthy ways. Eights are primarily driven by a desire for power and control and a fear of being overpowered or controlled, which can lead to our occasionally intimidating other people. Eights are prone to losing their tempers and have trouble being vulnerable, frequently leading to being defensive, confrontational, and emotionally reclusive. I could see this happening at times. You know, getting defensive with Maria at home was a recurring theme, but at least I apologized when I did it. I was patient for weeks before I finally had a come-to-Jesus meeting with an employee at the office, and when I opened the door, the rest of the team, including my boss, looked at me with what I can only describe as abject terror. But I only had to raise my voice on that rare occasion. And I love getting on the phone with customer support when a company screws something up. I was very good at confronting people over their incompetence and intimidating them when I needed to get results, but only when I needed to you know, a healthy eight, <laughs> who is deeply concerned with protecting others and righting injustice, and who is also very skilled in the art of self-justification. One day coming home from work, I pulled my convertible with the top down into the turn lane leading into my neighborhood, when to my left I saw a troubling situation on the sidewalk, a young man chasing a young woman who was yelling and clearly terrified that he was going to catch her. I didn't even check to see if traffic was coming the other way, as I wasted no time zipping my car onto the street she'd crossed to create a barrier between the two of them so she'd have a few seconds to create some separation. 
She jumped into a car and sped off while the dude who was chasing her stood over me, furious, screaming obscenities directly over my head because, as you'll recall, I had the top down. What the bleep is wrong with you? That's my girl. Why can't you stop bleeping? Mind your own bleeping business, he screamed. What the bleep is wrong with you? I yelled right back, getting all jersey on him. <laughs> you don't chase your girlfriend when she's screaming to get away from you. Man, she's my bleeping ride. How the bleep am I supposed to get home? To which I genuinely inquired in a very calm voice, do you need a ride? He stopped, looked at me like I was insane, <laughs> shook his head, said, no, 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 man, I'm good. <laughs> so I drove down the street, pulled into my driveway, kept my hands on the steering wheel for a minute and thought, what the hell did I just do? And it was a legitimate question. Because you see, I, the real Sue Kemple, as I'm known by my Twitter handle, actually didn't know what had come over me. I reacted to that situation without thought, without intent, and with utter recklessness. The whole thing must have taken no more than 30 seconds. Now, I'm not saying that doing something to prevent this young man from hurting his girlfriend wasn't warranted, but I didn't do it. I was hijacked and driven by external circumstances operating from a place that wasn't actually me. The Enneagram is useful for coming to understand ourselves and others in many ways for helping us determine the motivations behind doing the things we do. But we can't sit around and say, I'm a five, and just let that be something with which we identify as being true about ourselves. For one reason, it's just not true. I heard a great line on a podcast that Michelle Carter sent me recently. The Enneagram isn't about types of people, it's about types in people. We all have a little bit of all the types, it's just that most of us lead with one of them. We also have tri-types and wings and instinctual variants. And when we're under stress, we go to one type, and when we're in our zone, we go to another. It's a lot to take in, and fortunately, as you've been told a few times already this morning, after today's service, Robin begins her series down the hall on the different triads, patterns of growth, and the fears that each type must name and process in order to grow. And in that process of growth, as Robin says, we will come to learn that our types aren't who we are, they are actually who we are not. They are our false selves. Not one of them is anyone's true self, because who we are is so much deeper than all the mechanized manifestations of our personalities, and when we identify with our false selves, we are unable to see the deeper truth of who we really are. What we really want to do, if we haven't done so already, is shift from using the Enneagram as a tool for personality typing to a school of self-observation and disidentification that grounds us in balanced three-center awareness, the gut, the heart, and the head. And when we are so grounded, we can transform. Now, the cultivation of our observing selves is the linchpin to deep transformation. As my friend John often repeats, you can't read the label if you're still in the bottle. But how do we get out of the bottle? How do we clear our lenses of perception so that we can clearly, objectively, and non-judgmentally observe ourselves? It isn't easy. It requires brutal honesty about our behavior, about the externalities that drive our lives, and a willingness to, as Jesus put it, take the planks out of our own eyes. Once again, aren't we lucky to be members of this community here at Common Thread, where we have a wealth of tools and practices at our disposal? The Enneagram work that Robin leads is one of the best ways into this lifelong learning process, and if you can make it to her series starting today, I would encourage you to do that. 
I spoke in the fall about our self-awareness practice. The talk is on the website. Go have a listen if you like. And I hope you'll consider my encouragement to make frequent use of this transformative practice. But learning about the Enneagram and doing the self-awareness work still only gets us so far. It's what our real selves do with that knowledge and awareness that matters. And being able to operate from that place, from that deep I am, that is purely illuminated by the divine within each of us, requires a faithful and consistent employment of the contemplative spiritual practices. Now, most of you know I'm on a roll here lately encouraging everyone to adopt some kind of contemplative practice, which is kind of funny because when we first started coming to Common Thread, I was pretty much opposed to doing the contemplative practices. I can't meditate, I'd say to Maria. It's boring. I have that monkey brain. It just doesn't work for me. And she'd give me a slightly incredulous look and say, baby, that's exactly why we meditate. <laughs> but you know, things have happened in my life over the past year or so that have led me to adopt these ancient practices and even to dive quite deeply into them. Centering prayer is at the heart of it, which is a practice I do once or twice a day that paves the way for me to incorporate the welcoming prayer into the daily rhythm of my life, the perfect prayer for helping me in the moments when I am most susceptible to operating from my ego-driven self. For example, just the other day, I was irritated with a company that was taking forever to respond to a simple request, and I began to shoot off one of my famous, you're incompetent emails. But then I stopped, and I said, welcome, irritation. I let go of my desire for power and control. I let go of my desire to change this situation. And on the other side of that, I found my irritation abated. And the peace that passes all understanding softly reminded me that it is within me, grounding me again. And, critically important, I didn't go and hurt anyone else with my eight self. As I am increasingly grounded in my regular practice of centering prayer, I am ever more able to let go of those false needs and desires, which at the end of the day aren't really mine at all. And when I'm faithful to these and other practices, I change, I grow, and I very slowly but steadily move from a life driven by unconscious reactions to external circumstances into the beginning of a new life grounded in a deep and rich center of internal conscious awareness. As I begin to awaken to this wondrous way of being, I find that those lists of things I uncover about my unconscious behavior get smaller and smaller. I can't remember the last time I became defensive when Maria has brought some behavior of mine to my attention because I understand now that the behavior isn't me. It's driven by one of those many false selves I carry and from which I am working to disidentify and I don't have any desire to defend what my false selves are up to. And by the way, Maria is also doing this work. We do it together. She does it by my side. So she is less concerned with pointing out the specks she sees in my eye and focusing on the plank in her own. And part of why I can't remember the last time she's done this is because my false selves just aren't as meddlesome as they used to be. I'm becoming more and more able to access that inner well of mystical hope I talked about here on New Year's Day, that deeply grounded place that is filled with a kind of quiet, calm peace, a place from which my real I am can show up authentically. At least I'm beginning to. What Maria and I are experiencing is unique to us, but it's not a unique experience. It is a universal possibility for anyone who desires to live a genuine conscious life from their truest selves, illuminated by the inner light. Repent, said John the Baptist in the Gospel of Matthew, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. 
I think I've achieved a biblical reference hat trick today. <laughs> and this is a perfect one to pull out here in the season of Lent. But I do it only to point out one more meaningful verse rooted in ancient wisdom that's been misunderstood for far too long. You see, the Greek word that we have translated as repent is metanoia, which doesn't mean beat your breast, rend your garments, and lament what an awful sinner you are. It means change your mind, or even better, go beyond your mind. It calls for a change in consciousness, a call to step out of the ego domination that is concerned with power and control, safety and security, love and affirmation. And to do that, we gotta get out of our heads. Why do we have to get out of our heads? Because our small ego-driven minds and intellects will not get us to the kingdom of heaven. And by the way, the kingdom of heaven isn't a place we go when we die, but it is that very peace that passes all understanding that our real selves can feel, taste, touch, and consciously abide in if only we can clear our lens of perception by getting our egos out of the way. That's what Nicodemus didn't understand in the Episcopal Church's lesson today. He didn't know what Jesus meant by being born again. He was trying to understand it with his intellect and from his ego perception. The institutional church has tried for millennia to explain it from those same limited perceptions, telling us it's about making a statement of faith, adhering to a creed, or making a one-time decision to accept Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. One might well do all those things in good faith, but those things in and of themselves are not how we get there. First, we must desire change. Then, we must awaken to precisely what it is in us that we want to change through self-observation. Then, we must disidentify from or die to our false selves so that we can get our egos out of the driver's seats of our lives and finally, we can be born again. And again, and again, for I can tell you that I know in my life and the lives of some people who are very dear to me that being born again is a real thing, an ongoing thing, an inner life waking up thing, and there is nothing our real selves could possibly want more. As a formerly single working mom, I am very sensitive to the real life obstacles to silence and inner work that Angie brought up a few weeks ago. And I'm grateful for Jack's comment that the universe is a generous place, that it gives us all we need in every moment for our spiritual growth, even when stillness and silence are hard to come by. And so taking all these things into consideration, we are rebuilding a robust contemplative ministry here at Common Thread. And over the next few months, you'll learn of many opportunities to engage with them, to find ways we can incorporate them into our hectic and harried lives, to carve a path for our own ongoing transformation, and to be mutually supportive of each other as we do it in community. Now next Sunday, and on the second Sunday of each month, if not more often, we will be meeting in the conference room down the hall at 9.15 to do centering prayer together. And I encourage you to come join us if you can, and indeed to make centering prayer a regular part of your life in a way that works for you. So let's do a little of it together right now. As a reminder, centering prayer is not like other meditations. It's not about returning to mantras or focusing on our breath, worthwhile practices, but different ones. Centering prayer is about surrender, letting our monkey brain thoughts gently find another place to go, using our sacred word as a tether to bring ourselves back to the divine presence so we can really hear that deep, still voice within. Let's begin. And so, indwelling divine, kindle in us the desire 
to do the work required to go beyond our minds, get the planks out of our eyes, and truly be born again. Amen. So, uh, I want to apologize, first of all, for not paying enough attention to my slides and my slide crew, because there were other slides you could have seen here. And if you'd never done centering prayer before, I'm sorry you didn't see that one. Uh, mea culpa. Beaten my breast. I will repent. So um, as Doug reiterated in his email this week, uh, this is such a generous community and that Rise for Hunger event last year was an abundantly generous investment of time and labor and service to people in difficult circumstances who will be fed by all the meals that were packed here. And the oneness uh, that we talk about all the time was really palpable. You know, Maria and I consider it such a privilege to be a part of this community and to be able to work beside all of you. And I, I don't know, I don't have enough good things to say about last week. It really was remarkably wonderful. Um, so it's important to remember, as Doug says each week, there's good return when we invest in spiritual community, when we give our time, our energy, our love, and the dollars it takes to make it all go. Then the community takes those resources, amplifies them, and gives them back to us in the form of a community in which we thrive. So we all give online now these days. You know, what, you know the drill. You can go to the website. Uh, you can point your camera at the funny box behind me, find the donate button at the top of the page, and invest what you can in our community. Now, in a minute, uh, we're going to dismiss the folks on the live stream, and here in the room, we'll do What Are You Thinking? Now, if you're watching us online, you may not know about this distinguishing mark of our community life. But being in community, online as well as in person, and engaging with each other about what we learn is where so much spiritual growth can happen. So you'll see a link, live stream, stream folks, uh, in the YouTube notes, and also on the front page of our website to join our online What Are You Thinking group. Now, we know it's hard to click that link. It can be scary. It's sort of like going to lunch in middle school, right? What if they don't like me? What if they're mean? What if an asshole? Enneagram 8 like Sue is leading the group. Um, not to worry, today the lovely Cindy Appleby will be leading it, uh, uh, and I don't lead it till the 19th, but um, of course, remember now, I'm a healthy eight, so that when I lead it, you're going to be fine. <laughs> um, anyway, I invite you to press against the resistance, and I can speak from personal experience that it's a wonderful group of folks who are eagerly anticipating welcome you, welcoming you to join them today. So, find the link in the YouTube notes or on the homepage of our website, and the password is... 1417. That's 1417. And with that, folks in the room and folks on the live stream, can we put one hand on our hearts and remember what we spoke about in the lesson as we go? We are, every one of us, carriers of the inner light, carriers of divine spirit, carriers of the fruit of divine spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, they're all in us. And let's extend our other hand to our city this week, let's look for opportunities to share what's already in us with the people we love, work, and go to school with, looking for opportunities to repair and redeem our world. Amen. Folks on the live stream, you are dismissed, and folks in the room, you are not. <laughs> okay. So Heather said she was going to help be the classroom manager for this because it's an unruly group of people, and so I, I, we knew we were going to need some support, but... Um, well, we could do it our usual way, where you simply form groups of five, and that is always the opportunity, or we could do it in a way we've done it a couple times, where you are forced to sit in groups with people you do not normally sit in front of. Any consensus? 
Oh, <laughs> indecision. Just All right, so what we do. <laughs> <laughs> If these recordings help you move forward on your spiritual journey, we hope you'll take an ownership stake in the community and support the health and well-being of the community. Go to our website, commonthreadchurch.org. The donate button is right there on the top. Thank you.